All right, you can uh, open your Bibles to Genesis 16, page 7, if you have a pew Bible with us. Uh, We are looking this spring at the life of Abraham together. Uh, Abraham, next to Jesus, probably the most important person in the Bible. And uh, what we're looking at is how this uh, man, Abraham, can actually show us what a life of love toward God looks like. Uh, But we're doing that by actually not being wowed uh, at the, the unwavering commitments and faithfulness of Abraham to God, uh, but actually by seeing God's unwavering commitment and faithfulness to Abraham, uh, who, as we will be reminded again today, despite all the great things he does, is still an imperfect, broken mess of a man, which couldn't be better news. Because what that means is if God is gracious to him, then we can be sure this morning that God will be gracious to us too. So follow, if my voice will let us this morning, starting in verse 1. Let's read through Genesis 16. Uh, Follow as I read in your Bibles. It says, Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children, but she had an Egyptian servant named Hagar. So she said to Abram, the Lord has kept me from having children. Go, sleep with my servant. Perhaps I can build a family through her. Abram agreed to what Sarai said. So after Abram had been living in Canaan 10 years, Sarai, his wife, took her Egyptian servant Hagar and gave her to her husband to be his wife. He slept with Hagar and she conceived. Now, when she knew she was pregnant, she began to despise her mistress. Then Sarai said to Abram, you're responsible for the wrong I'm suffering. I put my servant in your arms, and now she knows she's pregnant, and she despises me. May the Lord judge between you and me, Abram. Your slave is in your hands, Abram said. Do with her whatever you think's best. Then Sarai ill-treated Hagar, so she fled from her. The angel of the Lord found Hagar near a spring in the desert. It was the spring that's beside the road to shore. And he said, to Hagar, uh, he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? I'm running away from my mistress, Sarai, she answered. Then the angel of the Lord told her, No, go back to your mistress and submit to her. The angel added, I will increase your descendants so much that they will be too numerous to count. And then the angel of the Lord said to her, You are now pregnant and you will give birth to a son. You shall name him Ishmael. For the Lord has heard of your misery. He will be a a wild donkey of a man. His hand will be against everyone, and everyone's hand will be against him, and he'll live in hostility towards all his brothers. She gave this name to the Lord who spoke to her You, 
You are the God who sees me. For she said, I have now seen the one who sees me. That's why the well was called Bir Lachai Roy. It is still there between Kadesh and Bered. So Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram gave the name Ishmael to the son she had borne him. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore him Ishmael. Uh, the, the poet Nathaniel Hawthorne, he once wrote a short story called The Celestial Railroad. Now, in this story, the, the man, the, the main character in this story, this man falls asleep and has a dream. And in this dream, he hears about this railroad that is promising to whisk people off on this effortless, leisurely journey to the celestial city, to heaven. And so the man in the story buys a ticket, and before he even necessarily is aware of what's happening, suddenly his bags are packed on the train, he is plopped in the seat, and this thing is off and running. And as he is, is being whisked leisurely to the celestial city, this man looks out the window, and he sees all these people who, who are straining and groaning and trying to get there as well. But not him. No, he found the shortcut. Well, when he gets there, uh, he gets off the train, and uh, all that's left is a short, short boat ride across the river to the final destination. But when this man gets on the boat, he suddenly realizes he's been tricked. This whole thing's been a hoax. The whole time this train actually hasn't been bringing him to heaven, it's been bringing him to hell. Now, Hawthorne, who, I mean, he wasn't a Christian man, he, he wrote this allegory to make several different points about culture, society in his day, but one of the things that he was trying to show people was that sometimes efficiency doesn't always take you where you want to go. You know, sometimes the shortcut Sometimes the, the sidestep actually becomes a disaster. Well, in the passage that, that we just read, Abram and Sarai try to take the shortcut. They try to shortcut faith. And it ends up being an absolute disaster. At this point, it's been over 10 years since God in Genesis 12 promised Abram and Sarai, Sarai who's unable to have children, since God promised them that he was going to give them a son, a son who he was going to use to bless a sin-cursed world. Ten years, and they're still waiting. Ten years. I mean, I can't even wait for an Amazon Prime package that takes longer than two days. Ten years. And this promise seems just like a fairy tale to them at this point. But when we read <clears throat> verse 1, we think, finally, God's going to do something about it. It says, now, Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. This, this was a common way in the Old Testament of introducing a story where someone's in need and God intervenes. The story will start off by saying, now this person had this problem, and come and look what God did. Only it's not how this story goes. 
No, verse one says, now Abram, Sarai's, uh, or Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children, but she had an Egyptian servant named Hagar. Abram and Sarai want to see God's promises fulfilled. They, they want to experience in their lives the blessings of the gospel, and they have two choices in front of them at this point in chapter 16. They can either trust that God will supernaturally give them a son, or they can get one on their own through Hagar. They can either trust the promises of God, receive his blessings by grace, or they can get them by their own means. They can try to snatch them out of God's hands. They choose the latter. The rest is a disaster. You know, every day that we wake up, we are presented with those same two choices. We can either trust the promises of the gospel, receive its blessings by grace, or we can try to get them on our own. And how often do we choose the latter? How often do we, just like Abram and Sarai, get impatient, distrustful, skeptical of God's love and think, you know what, I need to take matters into my own hands. Well, what we need to see this morning is who Hagar found in this passage. Or even better, who found her. So we're going to look quickly, maybe very quickly, depending on my voice, at uh, three things in this passage this morning. The sin that reaches the God that searches, and the friend that blesses. So first, the sin that reaches. Uh, Reboots, TV reboots. Who doesn't like seeing your favorite show from yesteryear get told again with uh, some fresh voices? Uh, Whether it's Fresh Prince, Magic School Bus, Twin Peaks, I mean, I don't know what you like. The, the astonishing thing is there are some shows where you find out people actually watched that. I'm surprised. I thought nobody watched that. Now it's getting watched again. Uh, I'm still waiting for them to do a reboot of Recess. Does anybody remember the cartoon Recess growing up? It was the best cartoon that was ever made. The, the whole point of a reboot, though, is to tap into nostalgia, It's to uh, go back to that story we all loved and tell it again with some fresh voices. Well, the beginning of Genesis 16 is a reboot, only of a story that never should have been told again. In uh, scattered throughout the first half of this chapter that we just read are phrases that are plucked right from Genesis 3, where Adam and Eve fell into sin. Uh, In Genesis 3, Eve assumes the initiative. She takes the fruit. She gives it to her husband, who listens to what she says and eats what she's given him. And in Genesis 16, Sarai assumes the initiative. She takes her servant, Hagar, gives her to her husband, who listens to what she says and sleeps who she's given him. It's a reboot of the fall. It's a reboot of the story that should have never been told. Again, only here's the one twist in it that's different this time. 
Abram and Sarai are not reaching out in that moment to grasp lustfully some you know, piece of forbidden fruit that God has said they can't have. No, Abram and Sarai are reaching out for the promises of God. They're reaching out for the blessings of the gospel, and it ends in a wreck just like Genesis 3. Uh, Abram and Sarai are starting to get impatient at this point. They're getting distrustful of God. They're getting skeptical of his grace, and so they decide to shortcut faith. They decide to take matters into their own hands. Uh, surrogate mothers, a very socially common thing in that day. Uh, if a woman uh, couldn't have children, uh, they would uh, find a surrogate mother to have a child through. And so Sarai looks at Hagar, who uh, we can assume is, uh, is young, healthy, able to have kids. And instead of trusting God's grace, instead of waiting to receive what only God can do, she tries to speed things up on her own. She tries to speed the promises of God up on her own. And Moses, who's, who's writing Genesis, is making it crystal clear that that self-effort of Abram and Sarai, who are trying to experience the, the blessings of God just through their own means, he is making it crystal clear that that is just as sinful as the defiant disobedience of Adam and Eve which is so much different than how we normally probably think about religious self-effort because so often it actually looks like someone is so committed, so serious about God, and yet in reality they are rejecting God just as much as Adam and Eve. You know, when, <clears throat> when we think that through a, a, a right amount of obedience, we can uh, make up for past sins. We can avoid suffering. We can make sure that our prayers are answered. We, we can assure that we'll have a generally happy, successful, uninterrupted life. What we're really saying is, I can get the blessings of the gospel on my own. Only we would, we would never say it that way, especially not here at a church like Crosspoint. Hardly anybody would just walk around owning up to that. And I don't even think we're necessarily always even aware or conscious that we're doing it. So how can you tell? Well, look at how you relate to other people. You know, if there's someone that you know that's struggling, maybe it's a difficult life situation, uh, maybe it's some sort of sin uh, that uh, they're experiencing consequences of right now, if, if, if you're cold if you're detached, if you're distant, if you look down on them, that's because really deep down you're thinking, God's blessed me with a seemingly good life because I've earned it. I, I did all of the things that I was supposed to do for God to give me this kind of tranquil, uninterrupted life, whereas this person clearly hasn't. It's their fault. And, and so really, they just need to pull themselves together and, and be more like me. But for others of us, we don't need to look at how we relate to other people. We need to look at how we relate to ourselves. Because for some of us, this, this heart of religious self-effort actually shows up in a reverse way. We're not uh, smug or self-righteous. If anything, we feel guilt-ridden. Uh, we feel ashamed. 
who have a very low spiritual self-esteem, never really have that much confidence in our faith. We always kind of hang on the, the edge, the periphery, the fringes of church community because deep down we think, you know, the way, uh, the way that I get the blessing and favor of God in my life is through what I do, through my own self-effort. Problem is, I just can't do it. I'm, I'm always messing up. I'm, I'm always falling short. I'm always stuck in the same pattern of sins. You see, it's religious self-effort, both of them. The smug and self-righteous or the always down on themselves person, both are shortcutting faith, just like Abram and Sarai. Because you're saying instead of relying on God's promises, instead of relying on God to do what only he can do, instead of receiving his blessings by grace, I need to go out and get them on my own. Some of us feel like we have, so we're very prideful about it. Others of us feel like we haven't, and so we feel very down on ourselves about it. But it's the same issue in our heart. Deep down, just like Abram and Sarai, here's what's going on. I think deep down, we do this because we're really afraid that God is not going to love me as much as he says he will. That God is not in the gospel going to come through for me. And so I need to go out and get things on my own. Which is why we need to see what happens next. God coming and blessing a person who could do nothing but receive it. It's from the sin that reaches to the God that searches. Uh, Hagar, <clears throat> at this point in the story, has become a victim of the sin of Abram and Sarai. She's become disposable. Uh, she's degraded, humiliated, to the point that she left. She fled, it says, from Abram. She fled from the man who's supposed to be a blessing to her. That's how bad it had gotten. And now she's pregnant, she's alone, she has no financial means, she's wandering in the desert in absolute need. And in verse 7, everything changes for her. It says, the angel of the Lord found Hagar. Found. There is not a more hope-filled word in the Bible than found. Just like the woman in Luke 15 found the lost coin, the shepherd finds the lost sheep, the angel of the Lord found this wounded, wandering woman at her point of greatest need. You know, if you're wondering what it means to be a Christian, the definition of a Christian is somebody who's been found. Being a Christian means at its core, you've been found. You've been found by the searching grace of God. That as you, like Hagar, were wounded and wandering in your place of greatest need, you were found by the God that you didn't search for, but in the gospel never 
stopped searching for you. Hagar gets found by God and has a life-changing encounter with his love. Uh, Rembrandt, the painter Rembrandt, he made this uh, very famous painting, some of you may have seen it before, of the father in the parable of the prodigal son in Luke 15, uh, who's embracing his son who has collapsed, the, the, the prodigal son who's come home has collapsed into his arms. And the father is there, and he's holding him, and he has his arms around him. And if you get a chance to look at the picture and look carefully at it, you'll realize something very weird in it. The dad, the father in that uh, painting, his hands don't match. They look different. All right, now clearly Rembrandt is a more than able painter, all right? I don't think this was just a lack of skill on his part. It's just hands were never really his thing. He was more of like a face and eyes guy. There's got to be some sort of reason behind it, and there is. What he did was this. He gave the father the hand of a man and the hand of a woman. Because what he was trying to capture was both the strength and the tenderness of God's love. Well, Hagar, in the middle of the desert, she meets the strength and the tenderness of God's love. The angel says to her in verse 9, go back. Go back to your mistress and submit to her. Now, this seems more than a touch insensitive, doesn't it? I mean, whatever was happening in Abram's house, we don't know the full extent of it, whatever is happening, this pregnant, soon-to-be single mom with no financial means in the ancient world said, essentially, I'd rather die in the desert than spend another day living in your house. And now God's telling her to go back? And not only go back, but he tells her to submit to the woman who was humiliating her. Now, <clears throat> this is not a verse uh, for abuse victims to go back into abusive situations. It's not what it's talking about at all. Uh, God's not condoning what Abram and Sarai have done. But what he is doing is this. He is telling Hagar the only way to experience my blessing, the only way to live in the riches of my grace is under Abram's roof. I know he's a mess. I'm not denying that in any way possible. But I have chosen him to be my means of blessing the world. And so you can't have me without him. You gotta go back. I know it'll be hard, but you gotta go back. It's the strength of God's love that Hagar's meeting here that we meet sometimes and tells us things that we don't always want to hear. You got to forgive that person. You got to confess that sin. You got to give the church another chance. I know they're a mess. I'm not denying that, but you can't have me without them. It's 
things that we don't always want to hear, but in the gospel is always coming from a fierce love of God that says, I want you to have absolute as much of me as you possibly can. God finds her with the strength of his love, and then he also finds her with the tenderness of it. He doesn't just tell her to go back, but the angel of the Lord says to her, I will increase your descendants so much that they will be too numerous to count. Does that sound familiar? That's what God told Abram. You're now pregnant, and you're going to give birth to a son, and you shall name him Ishmael. For the Lord has heard your misery. And Hagar in verse 13 says, you are, you are the God who sees me. I hear you and I see you. Aren't those the words that everybody wants to hear when they're at their lowest, worst points? You're not going to drown. You're not going to fall under. You're not unseen or insignificant. No, not to God. God comes to Abram and says, I hear you, I see you, and I will bless you. God promises to bless Hagar here in her place of greatest shame. The baby growing inside of her the one that she never asked for and has now become cursed because of. You know, the places in your life that you are most repulsed by, the things that you are most ashamed of, the parts of your story that you most want to bury to yourself and to everyone else, those are the parts that actually God is most drawn to. See, the redeeming love of God, it actually works the opposite of a fly. He's not attracted or drawn to the light in us, but to the darkness in us. Those are the places that God most wants his glory to shine. Those are the parts in us that he most wants to show the power of his gospel, the things in you that he most wants to bring his blessings And here's Hagar, wounded, wandering, and she gets found. Found by who? Hopefully we'll find out if the roof doesn't fall down. <clears throat> From the sin that reaches, to the God that searches, lastly to the sun that blesses. The passage uh, just says it was the angel of the Lord who found Hagar. Uh, now that term, angel of the Lord, actually gets used over 50 times in the Old Testament. Uh, these angels are God's messengers. They show up from time to time, uh, seeming, appearing to be real people, uh, and they bring good news, good news of God's mercy. But there's actually a special, unique uh, angel of the Lord who appears from time to time in the Old Testament. Someone who speaks with divine authority, who has divine abilities, and who, when people talk to for long enough, suddenly realize is divine himself. What's called a theophany, a visible appearance of God 
in the Old Testament. And when it comes to this special angel of the Lord, it's not a mystery who it is. We know exactly who it is. It's Jesus. It is the pre-existent son of God. Because the book of Hebrews tells us God only reveals himself through his son. Now, who's Hagar talking to? Hagar is talking to an angel of the Lord who claims divine authority, saying, I will increase you and your descendants, something only God would have the authority to ever say, who has divine abilities. He knows everything about Hagar, even though she's never met him before. And who, when Hagar talks for long enough in verse 13, suddenly the light goes off on, and she realizes, is God himself Who found Hagar? Jesus. Jesus, the eternal Son of God, was searching for this wounded, wandering sinner, ready to meet her and bless her. And what Jesus in Genesis 16 does in human form, it's just a preview for what he would eventually come and do in human flesh. When Jesus comes seeking the lost, looking for wanderers, pursuing the wounded, who in the gospel says, I see you, I hear you, and I will bless you in your places of greatest need. Who just like he did when he met another woman, another Hagar, out on her own in the heat of the day in John 4, Jesus stares into the depth of our sin and need and offers a strong and tender grace. Grace that says, those parts of you that you're most ashamed of, that you most want to run from, that you want to bury to yourself and everyone else through my cross and resurrection, I'm going to bring the promises of God there. The places that you most feel cursed through my death and new life, I'm going to bless. The story of sin that, like Hagar, you can't undo through my broken and risen body, I'm going to rewrite it. But to do that, to do that, it will come through Jesus Christ himself, putting himself in the place of suffering, of humiliation, of woundedness, God himself becoming used and abused, cast aside and finally cursed by God because there are no shortcuts to fulfilling the promises of God. There's no celestial railroad to undo the wreck of our sin. There's just a bloody cross. A cross through which Jesus was hoisted high, searching for wounded and wandering sinners to, by faith, give them the blessings of God. 
You see, shortcutting faith is really just another way of shortcutting Jesus. It will end in a wreck. You look at Abram and Sarai, their plan worked and it failed. You know, Hagar goes home and she has a son, but as verse 12 says, he will be a wild donkey of a man and his hand will be against everyone and he will live in constant enmity with his brothers, hostility, meaning he's not the son of promise. Clearly this man, this wild donkey of a man is not the person God's gonna use to bless the world. Abram and Sarai try to shortcut their way to God's promises and are finding out they can't. They can't just reach out and grab the blessings of the Gospels from God's hand all on their own, and neither can we. You know, when we, through our own self-effort, think we can just snatch the blessings of the Gospel out from God's hands instead of receiving them, by faith, it'll always be a wreck But when we instead trust in the true child of promise, the greater son of Abram, who God is using to bless a sin-cursed world, Jesus finds us in our places of greatest need, finds us where we are wounded and wandering and does what only he can. Make the blessings of God flow in us as far as the curse is found. So has he found you? Let's pray. Father, thank you uh, that in Christ you see us, you hear us, and in the gospel, you bless us. That you find us when we are wounded and wandering. And just like Jesus did to Hagar, you tell us through the cross and resurrection, you are going to bring blessing in the places where we feel utterly cursed. God, give us the faith to believe that this morning and to trust and rely on it. To not try to reach out and snatch these promises on our own, but instead, Holy Spirit, fill us with a faith that receives what only Christ can do, making the blessings of God flow in us as far as the curse is found. Amen.